my name's Rohit, so I'm grateful to be sober today. So I'm just going to share a bit about what it was like and uh, what it is now and uh, what I've learned on this journey. So I think my addiction can uh, be traced back to uh, my childhood. Um, I had a quite unhappy childhood for a couple of reasons. Uh, firstly, I was the only uh, kid of Indian origin. You know, I grew up in the English countryside, so uh, I was the only kid in my school who wasn't white. So uh, racism was a regular part of uh, my primary school, elementary school experience. Um, I was constantly told, uh, you know, go back to where you come from, go back to where you come from, kids would say to me. So, uh, yeah, I got this real feeling that uh, I didn't belong in England. And I remember even saying that to my parents that uh, I didn't belong here. This wasn't my country. And uh, so I think that ingrained within me a real feeling of alienation, a real sense of not belonging, which was uh, yeah etched within me from my childhood. And also, um, I had a difficult relationship with my father. Um, I understand now that uh, what he was doing was a kind of negative reinforcement. But, you know, he was hoping by telling me I'm a failure, it would spur me on to do well and prove him wrong. But, uh, you know, it, what it amounted to was a kind of uh, psychological and physical abuse, you know, being told I'm a failure all the time and uh, being compared to his friend's children or my friends. So that gave me an inferiority complex from a very young age. And uh, it's taken me, I think finally I'm getting somewhere close to getting away from it, but it's still a work in progress for me to uh, move on from that aspect of my life. So I wasn't a very happy child. And I honestly, I didn't know how to smile. And uh, it was a common thing when photographs were being taken and the photographer would say, can you not smile? But I just didn't. I just I just didn't know how to smile. I had this sort of intense sadness in me. And I think also it was clear in my childhood that that addictive personality was there. I'd remember going on, uh, we'd have family holidays to India. And, um, <clears throat> you know, there's always lots of food in Indian culture, you know, your relatives, people you go see, they want you to eat, eat. And even though I didn't have to eat everything there, you know, I would have to pile my plate with every single part of food, I had to have all of the food, even if I didn't need to eat all the food. Something in my mind was like, I must eat everything that's here. And uh, in Indian culture, it's bad manners not to finish your food. So I would eat all the food and every trip to India, I would make myself ill. So I think that was a very clear aspect, I'm sorry, clear indication that I was an addict. And so, as I say, you know, I was quite unhappy through my childhood. And then when I went to university, you know, I, I managed to, you know, I'd had some alcohol. I just, you know, had a bit of weed, but, you know, because I came from a very strict family, it was difficult to have too much of that. But I remember at university, you know, properly getting drunk for the first time. And it was this feeling like a big weight had been lifted. And it was this feeling that oh, now I know what it is to be happy and uh, a sense that everything was right with the world. The world was how it should be. And, you know, I, frankly, I felt like I was in heaven. I went to a university which was in the countryside, 
in campus with uh, four bars. And so, yeah, I was out every night. And I did kind of get this indication that I was going a bit crazy because I did notice that every night I was out drinking, but I rationalized it to myself. I said, okay, I came from a very strict Indian upbringing where I didn't have a chance to party. You know, I'm, suddenly I've got this freedom. This freedom's just going to my head. It'll be okay. Things will settle down. But of course, they didn't settle down. You know, I got into uh, the rave scene and uh, started taking ecstasy. And um, that was, became a regular thing, almost a daily thing of um, taking pills and uh, going out partying every night. And most, you know, the sensible thing to do is to fit your partying around your studies. I fitted my studies around my partying. And um, yeah, when I look back at the person that I was at university, I... Uh, there are people I owe amends to who I wouldn't be able to owe amends to because I've just lost touch with them. You know, people who I was living in my university halls with. And, um, you know, we with my friends who I think were also addicts, we'd be up all night partying, making noise. These are people who were actually at university for the reason you should be at university, to study. And they'd have to complain. And then the resident tutor, as it was called, would have to come and tell us to be quiet. And you know, this just shows the self-centeredness of addiction. We didn't care. We didn't care that we were stopping people sleeping who wanted to actually study and make something of their degrees. And I think that was, really shows, you know, what a self-centered condition addiction is. So, yeah, I was uh, drinking a lot at university, doing lots of drugs. And, you know, when I'd go home, it was very clear to my parents that I was not, I was doing drugs. I mean, we never talked about it, but I was very skinny. My eyes were always bloodshot. And my dad would shout at my mum because, you know, he had it in his mind that he's perfect and anything that I do wrong is my mum's fault. It's my mum's liberal parenting. So uh, he would shout at my mum about it and my mum would be really upset and she cried to my sister because she had no one else to turn to. And that was a lot of pressure for a then 16-year-old girl to take on. She was my sister would have to deal with this. And I just didn't care. You know, I couldn't care less as long as I was having fun and partying. That's all that mattered. And I remember well, I've had a relative visit from India and my mom was like, can you come just three weekends, just three weekends, come and see your uncle and auntie and cousin? And I was so angry at the idea that I would have to take time out of my partying schedule to do this. And yeah, one day I came home drunk and uh, it really, again, highlights to me what a self-centered disease this is. The fact that, uh, you know, I didn't care about my mom's feelings. I didn't care about anybody else's feelings. All I cared about was that I'm able to go out partying. So uh, I got to the age of uh, 26 and I started to uh, get this feeling that, uh, you know, I wanted a different life. This wasn't really the life for me. I could see that I wasn't going anywhere in my life. And um, at the time I was a, a believer in God and uh, I started to get into uh, spirituality. And um, with that, came a uh, desire to stop drinking, to stop using. So 
I was able to, uh, for two years, to get sober. And, and while that didn't last, it was only two years, it still gave me a chance to uh, think about my life. And I started to think, I want my life to be bigger. Because all my life was at the time was working this dead end job so that I could have enough money to get wasted on the weekend, and somehow get through the week and then until the next weekend. But I was actually able to think, what do I want to do in my life? What do I want to do? That's something else. And I knew I'd always wanted to uh, work abroad. I wanted to uh, study, teach English abroad. So in those two years, I managed to study for a uh, TEFL, teach English as a foreign language qualification. I managed to um, complete that qualification and uh, apply for jobs and move to China. And when I got to China, I was teaching English and I was living in a small country town where it was impossible for me to get hold of any drugs. So in my mind, I thought, okay, I, I had a problem with drugs, but uh, yeah, I seem to be drinking and having no problems. So it's no big deal. I'm okay. You know, I, I fixed this. And then after a year, I moved to Shanghai and uh, Shanghai, not so much now, but back then was very much a party city. And I got back into drugs. So, you know, there was a lot of cocaine there. And then that became a regular thing. I would get drunk. I'd get some cocaine. I'd go back to my apartment because I'd, I'd made no friends. And I just sit in my apartment by myself, staying up all night. And um, I remember how freaky it would be because. I'd said to myself, you know, I would never do drugs in China, you know, with the drug laws here. But after a few beers, I didn't care. And then it would come to that point in the morning where, you know, I'm coming down. And then that realization that <laughs> I've done drugs and I'm in China. And I lived near a police station and I'd hear police sirens. And I would be sat in my room freaking out that the police were coming for me. And it's crazy to think that that was my life. That was a life that I was living. So I carried on doing that for a good year of being in Shanghai. And then one day on my, uh, it was my birthday and I went out with my friends. I got back to my, uh, when we, we went back to one of my friend's houses and uh, I, kept, I had some cocaine. So I kept doing lines in his bathroom without him or his wife knowing. And then the next day, I was filled with guilt and anxiety. I was filled with guilt about bringing drugs into his house without him or his wife knowing. I was filled with anxiety in case he found some powder while he was brushing his teeth. And I oscillated between those two emotions all day. And I had to teach a class that day. I did a part-time class, it was a Sunday. So I finished the class and I was so exhausted. And I thought I wanted to sleep, but Somehow I found the energy to go to a meeting and uh, there was an NA meeting in Shanghai. And so inside me, I just knew that's the, the only place I wanted to be at was at that NA meeting. So I went to that meeting that was on the 24th of October, 2016. And uh, thankfully I've been uh, attending meetings and staying sober ever since. So when I started going to the meetings, the uh, first thing that was uh, kept me coming back was the feeling of community because 
there were no secular meetings. There were no free thinker meetings in Shanghai. And I had thought about going to NA here, but uh, the God stuff had really, I'd really struggled with. But, you know, I'd been feeling this intense feeling of loneliness in Shanghai. I'd not made any friends. And, you know, every day I was going to meetings, I'd be seeing the same people and they'd be always asking how I was. They seemed to, you know, genuinely be concerned about my well-being. And I was able to put aside all my, uh, this, you know, struggles with the uh, more kind of theological aspects of NA. It was just that feeling of community that kept me coming back every day. And as I started coming back, I felt, okay, I can't agree with everything, all the 12-step teachings, but, you know, this is a place where I feel welcome. This is a place where I feel a sense of community. So this is a place where I can keep coming. And uh, I kept doing the meetings and uh, it became clear to me that I wanted to be a part of this fellowship. So I took a coffee position and I remember my first service position was you know, every Monday for a 7.30 meeting. So 7 a.m. Sorry, 7 p.m. I would get to the meeting early, half an hour early, make the coffee. And it feels like a small thing making coffee, but you know, just that small thing doing that service, it helped me to feel integrated into the fellowship. It helped me to feel a part of it. And then after I got three months, so, you know, I took my first service position chairing a meeting. And um, I, I credit that service position with saving me because, you know, as I say, by now I was very much an atheist. I was struggling with the whole 12-step teachings. I went through a point when I was disillusioned with NA because it was mainly NA I was going to. And I decided I didn't want to go to any meetings. But because I was chairing this one meeting, I felt a sense of responsibility to at least keep going to this meeting. And so I credit this meeting that I was chairing at the time with uh, saving me from relapse. And uh, at the time I was working with a sponsor, you know, I was trying to do the conventional thing of working with the sponsor doing the steps. And, you know, I fully respect that that path works for a lot of people, but you know, it didn't really work for me. Um, it was like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. So I did, you know, end working with that sponsor. And uh, today my program is uh, very different. So, you know, I, I have a, pro, a routine which I follow every day. I get up every morning and I, Someone taught me in the rooms about keeping your phone on airplane mode. Uh, so I have my phone on airplane mode. So the first thing I do in the morning is not looking at my phone. You know, I like to meditate. And meditation for me is 10 minutes just observing my breath going in and out. And then I do some journaling. The journaling that I do is um, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, which is where you... Uh, Look at the thoughts that are causing, well, look at the beliefs which are causing the emotions, negative emotions that you're feeling. So I write out my cognitive behavioral therapy exercises. And every day, only after I've finished meditating, only after I've finished my CBT exercises, do I allow myself to look at my phone. And I find that having that routine, if I start my day doing that, rather than looking at my phone, the day is completely different. 
you know, I feel so much more centered. I feel so much more focused about what I want to do with my day. And another important thing for me is to uh, do gratitude lists. I'm in a group chat where I write three things. We, we write three things we're grateful for every day. And I think gratitude is so important for me because, you know, before I was a grateful person, um, you know, I was a very much a self-pitying person. I was always focusing on how the other person's lot is so much better than mine. And I think that's one thing that caused me to drink and use. I would think this world, life, my life is so terrible. I need to escape my life. Whereas this the simple act of writing out a gratitude list. I'm able to say, okay, maybe I haven't got everything I want in life, but there's lots of pretty good things going on in my life. I have a lot to be grateful for. And another teaching that I found very helpful in the rooms is uh, keep your side of the street clean. Because it can be very easy for me to get resentful and say, oh, look at this other person. Why aren't they? I'm doing all of this. Why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they doing what they should be doing? But keep your side of the street clean just simplifies everything. That's their side of the street. They're responsible for doing that. I'm responsible for keeping my side of the street clean. So as long as I'm doing my bit, that's the important thing. And uh, also uh, one thing I important thing I learned in recovery is staying out of the results game. The idea that uh, I'm responsible for my actions but I'm not responsible for the results. Now, traditional AA would say God or higher power is responsible for the results. You know, for me, it's just, I'm not responsible for the results. That's not my department. So whenever I try and do something, I remind myself, stay out of the results game. As long as I've done my best, that's all that matters. And whatever the results will be, will be. Not saying I do it perfectly, of course, sometimes I do get agitated for the results, sometimes I do get stressed, but I would say having that teaching, it kind of makes it less and less focused on the results and more on, you know, just trying to do my best. And uh, I mentioned that I had a difficult relationship with my parents. I'm happy to say that uh, that has improved a lot in recovery. And this is uh, very clear to me. Uh, when I visited my parents, when I went back to the UK in um, 2019, and well, what was clear to me when I left my parents, I felt sad. I felt sad to be saying bye to them. And it's funny because that sadness, I felt happy to be feeling that sadness because I didn't used to feel that sadness before. I would be, I couldn't wait to get away from my parents so I could get back to my drink and drugs. So the fact that I felt sad, it was a really good sign for me that uh, the relationship had improved a lot. And, uh, you know, it's such a, you know, there was a time when my mum would, you know, cry on the phone to her sister about the person that I am. You know, my auntie gave her, a, she's quite religious, my mum, she gave her a Hindu prayer to, uh, say every day in the hope that I would improve and now I've gone from that to my mum saying that uh, she's proud of the person that I've turned into now I don't say that to boast but just to say you know just shows the power of this uh, recovery of uh, you know working a program of recovery staying clean 
it's just amazing to me to you know have this kind of relationship with my mum now because it's a far cry from what it used to be back in my 20s and I feel that everything that I've been going through in recovery has almost been a rehearsal for what I'm going through now you know I'm living here in Shanghai I've been in lockdown since April the 1st this lockdown means I can't leave my housing compound I haven't been able to go out on the streets since April the 1st I'm here by myself my girlfriend unfortunately is working away so I'm here by myself in my apartment now I'm just so grateful well I'm grateful for two things <laughs> having my girlfriend because she's able to help me to order food at a time when it's really hard to get food. I don't know where I'd be without her food wise. And I'm also grateful that I'm facing this lockdown sober because there's so many teachings I've learned in recovery, which I'm able to use now while I'm in this lockdown. For example, living life on life's terms. This is the terms that life has sent to me. I'm in lockdown. I can't change this lockdown. <laughs> I could either rage about it or I could try and get off my compound, which would result in me going to prison here in China. So aside from those two options, the only other option I have is to just accept this situation. Again, not saying I do it perfectly. You know, I have raged against this lockdown. I have despaired against this lockdown. But, you know, by following this program of recovery, focusing on this idea that living life's on life's terms. We can't change people, places, and things. I can't change the Chinese government as much as I want to. They've decided to do this lockdown. So this is the lockdown I must go through right now. And the other important teaching I've learned that is helping me in this lockdown is the whole idea of one day at a time, just for today, keep it in the day. You know, if I think about how long I've been in this lockdown, I'm going to start feeling resentful. If I think, when is this lockdown going to end? I'm going to feel agitated. But if I can just keep it in the day, you know, with each day when I wake up, what can I do with the day, given the conditions that I'm in? Then I can be more peaceful through the day. Again, not saying it's perfect. I do have moments where I feel angry and despair, but at least, you know, for most of the time through the day, I can just think about what things can I do with my day? For example, attending meetings like this, you know, thinking about studying things I haven't had a chance to study, focusing on hobbies, which I've not had a chance to focus on. And I just know that if I was facing this back in my uh, drinking, using days, I would be falling apart right now. I would really be struggling. I would be filled with anxiety. And uh, yeah, another thing, I've often reflected upon is the whole thing of uh, abstinence and moderation. I've got a few friends who uh, I would say are in active addiction and uh, they're always trying. They, they haven't given up on the idea of moderation and they have a similar pattern. They're always thinking, uh, you know, if only I could change my lifestyle, do more exercise, change my diet, change the day that I drink, change the people I hang out with then I will be able to moderate. And I look at them and I smile and I smile because I feel a happiness for myself that uh, I've given up that battle, you know. I'm not fighting that battle anymore to moderate. I'm very happy to uh, be abstaining because 
I was saying this to a friend who uh, has decided he still wants to do moderation that, okay, on paper, abstinence, it sounds harder than moderation, but it's actually a lot easier because I've just made that decision. I don't want to pick up a drink. I don't want to pick up a drug. I don't have to fight this battle of rearranging the decks, you know, rearranging the chairs on the Titanic, trying to figure out a way to moderate. And I feel it's a much more peaceful life. So yeah, I'd say thank you for giving me this opportunity to share. I'm very grateful to be in recovery and to have the sober, sober time that I have. I'm grateful to you all for helping me to stay sober. And with that, I'll pass, thanks.